So over the last month or so, we've been learning that as believers, there is a certain standard of conduct which should shape our daily lives, haven't we? As people who have such privileged position in Jesus Christ as us, we should stand out from the rest of the world. And I think that religious systems love to remind us of that fact. The problem is that most often, religious standards of the religious systems of this world really aren't the standards that God would have for us. Religious standards are usually the wrong standards. Did you know that? Let me tell you what I mean by that. For example, religion will tell you, now that you've taken the test and now that you've signed the membership card, now that you're part of our religious system, moving forward, you need to attend church at least twice a month, right? Something like that. Or how about this one? Now that you are part of our group, you'll need to read your Bible twice a day. You'll need to pray twice a day. I like this one. Starting today, you'll need to give 10% of everything you make to the church. Now that you're in the church, there'll be no more dancing. Now that you're in the church, there'll be no more going to movies. You can't conduct yourself in that way. That's what they used to say years ago. You know how it sounds, though, don't you? And I mean, I really want to think about it. All of those things, at least many of them, may be really good and honorable behaviors, and they're great sacrifices to make. But the problem is that what we are trying to do by doing these kinds of things is that we're trying to take an inward spiritual work and we're trying to externalize it into outward behaviors. That's the problem with those things. We're trying to externalize something that has happened on the inside. And these are the things that the world looks to as proofs. These are the things that the world looks to as evidences of the fact that Christ has done an internal work of regeneration in your lives. Think about it. I mean, think about it. Have you ever heard someone say, I think that guy is, he's probably a believer. And when you say, well, what makes you think that? They say, well, because he goes to church every Sunday, man. Have you ever heard that one? Because he goes to church all the time. Or how do you know that he's a believer? Well, because I watch him and he prays at lunch before he eats every day. I've seen it. I know that he's a believer. So now that we're in the club, we think that we should do this. Now that we're in the club, we think that we should not do that. We think that we should act in this way and we should externalize this thing. We should do this. We should do that. But did you know that there are a lot of people who go to church who are also going to go to hell? It's true. There are a lot of people who go to church all the time and they are still going to go to hell. You see, the world points to external things as proof that something has happened internally. The world looks on the outward things, but God looks where? He looks on the heart, 1 Samuel 16, 7. And here in Ephesians, Paul says something very different from what we've been hearing from the world. Paul says, now that you're believers... Your practice should fit your position. Now that you are believers, you should behave like you are believers. But what does he point to as the practices that fit the behavior of people in your position? What does he point to? Well, let's take a look. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to read in verse 1 again. And as we get started in verse 1, this is what he says. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk 
in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, right? So this is what he says. Paul says, based on everything that I have told you in the three previous chapters, based on everything that you know, I urge you now to walk in a way that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And he says, I urge you therefore to read your Bible twice a day. Isn't that what he says here? He says, I urge you, therefore, to pray before you eat. I urge you, therefore, to give 10% of everything that you make to the church. That's what I urge you to do. That's not what he says here, is it? He says, I urge you to live yourselves with all humility. Conduct yourselves in all humility. Conduct yourselves in all gentleness or all meekness. And look at this, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He doesn't ask us to externalize things, does he? Why didn't Paul ask us to do this or to do that? Why are all of these things internalized? Because man looks on the outside and God looks on the inside. And Paul says, now that you are believers, I urge you to have new attitudes. Now that you are believers, I urge you to have this thing that has happened on the inside and allow that to shape your outside. Does that make sense? You need to work it out from the inside to the outside, but your attitudes are the things that must have changed. He didn't give us behaviors that had to change. He gave us attitudes that had to change. He's telling the Ephesian people that people of your position, people of your high position, are people whose attitudes are different from those of the rest of the world. Your attitudes are different from everyone else's. And he starts, as we noted, by saying that people of your position are humble, aren't they? People who serve Jesus should be humble. And what I mean by that is that they should have a suppressed view of their own self-importance. They should have a pressed down or a low view of their own self-importance. They think of themselves in all lowliness. You see, they compare their sinfulness to the holiness of God and they see how lowly they truly are, don't they? When they look at their own sinfulness in light of God's holiness, they can't help but see themselves as lowly. And secondly, Paul says, people of your position are gentle or they are meek. People who serve Jesus should be gentle or they should be meek. They are not a bunch of sissies. They're not a bunch of cowards. They're not a bunch of wimps. They are just people who have their power completely under control. They have it completely under control. They know that there is a time and that there is a place to exercise their strength. They know that there is a time and place to exercise their power. They don't feel the need to defend themselves. They don't feel the need to lash out every time things don't go their way. They don't feel the need to fight back against people who would say things about them or mistreat them. Yet, when the honor of the glory of God is at stake those very same people will rush in to defend him. They will rush in to defend the word of God without any concern for their own well-being, without any fear of the circumstances. The moment that someone attacks their master, their power is unleashed and the glory of God is defended and they rush right in to protect him. So today, we're going to come to a third attitude which characterizes people of our position. And that's also found in verse 2. 
And this is what it looks like. I, Paul, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility, with all gentleness or meekness, and with all what? Patience. Do you see that? With all patience. People who serve Jesus should be patient. People who serve Jesus should be patient. So listen, people of our position, people of your position should practice humility. They should practice gentleness. And now they should practice patience as part of their daily patterns. And I want to help you understand that. I want to develop this concept of patience a little bit for you this morning. And if you've been to Root River Church more than a couple of times, you know that the New Testament was written in ancient Greek, and sometimes it's best for us to pause for a few moments and understand a word in its original context and in its original language. And so we're going to do that again this morning. And so I want to just take you to this Greek word that is translated as patience, and I want to help you understand how it works. So this Greek word is a compound word, which means that we're taking two words and mashing them together to form one word. And it's the Greek word makrothumia. Now, the first part of this compound is the word makros, and makros is the opposite of mikros. And you may feel like you don't know what any of that means, but I, you may not realize it, but you really have heard these words. All of you know these words, and you probably use them pretty often. For example, how many people know what a microscope is? Have you ever heard of a microscope? You know what that is, don't you? We often use these words and we don't realize it, but that's where the word microscope comes from. It means that we are looking at something very closely. We're looking at a small segment. Micros means small. So we're looking at something on a very, very small level. We're looking at a detailed level. And sometimes we say that we're going to look at things on a macro level. Have you ever said that? We're going to look at things on a macro level. And what does that mean? It means we're going to take a very high view. We're going to take an elongated view of something. We're going to take a long look at something in an overview. So micro means small and macro means large. So now you can go home and you can tell everybody that you learned a little bit of Greek this morning, okay? And everybody, I'm sure, will be very impressed with you for saying micro and macro. The very first part of this word patience is macro. Do you get it? This is important. Macros. It is long. So think about that. Now, I'm going to take you to the second part of this word. And the second part of this word comes from the Greek word thumos, which is derived from the Greek verb thuo. Now, this verb thuo is a very, very interesting word. It's the word that is used for the making of a sacrifice. Listen to this. For the making of a sacrifice by burning meat or pouring out some sort of a drink offering onto the altar. That's thuo. Macro thuo. So when we take macros and we put it in front of this thuo and we mash them together, what you get is a long sacrifice. Do you see it? We're getting this sense of a very long sacrifice. It's this long suffering in difficult circumstances. Does that make sense? So we're suffering. We're we're offering something up as a sacrifice. We put it on the idol. We set it ablaze. We burn it. And it's a very long offering. It's a very long sacrifice. Last week, the worship team played a song by Matt Redman that's called Gracefully Broken. How many of you remember that we did that last week? And as they were playing it, I was actually thinking forward to this week's message. And I thought of this word macrothumia. And if you'll remember the lyrics, it's written from the heart of one who is broken and he's in pieces. 
He's poured out on the altar. Do you remember that? He's poured out on the altar of sacrifice. And he's waiting for the sacrifice on the altar to be set afire. He's waiting for it to be set ablaze. And the cry is that God would take the broken sacrifice and work God's mighty power through all of the broken pieces of this sacrifice to multiply its effectiveness and to use it all to the glory of Christ. That's really the message of the song. And Paul says, now that you are a believer, people of your position should demonstrate this macrothumia. Do you see it? You should demonstrate this long suffering, this long sacrifice as a pattern of your conduct in your regular lives. That's just how you should be. It's an attitude. It's an internalized attitude where you endure the struggle, the long sacrifice, and you stay on the altar and you don't get up and run away. He says that not only should you be humble, not only should you be meek and gentle, but that you should model a pattern. You should model this pattern of long extended sacrificing. It should be present in every situation. It should be present in every circumstance in which you will ever find yourselves because it's a characterization of who you are. It's an internal attitude. It's something that is happening on your inside from which all of your external behaviors will flow. But there are a couple specific places where I want to show you this macro through Mia, if I could do that. One place that we must exhibit macro through Mia is in our circumstances. We must be patient in our circumstances. How many of you have ever heard the phrase, the patience of Job? Has anybody ever heard that? I know that some of you have even said that about my wife. Man, she must have the patience of Job to be married to that guy for 17 years. I know that you've said it. But we get that phrase from the book of Job, don't we? I want to help you understand Job a little bit. Job was a godly guy. He was a righteous man. He was an upright guy. In fact, God said of Job, God said this himself of Job. God says, Job is more upright and more blameless than anyone else on the earth. When God says that of you, you're in pretty good shape, right? You're, when God commends you for your righteousness and for being upright, you're a pretty upright guy. And he was a good guy. And one day Satan came to God and said, look, look how Job serves you. Of course he serves you. He only does it because you have lavished your blessing on him. He has every good thing. He has everything that he could ever desire. He has everything he could ever imagine. Personally, he's really not all that great. If you will just take away all of his possessions, if you'll take everything that he owns away from him, Job will turn around and like everyone else, he will curse you right to his face. And God said, well, okay, go ahead and take all Job's stuff, but you can't lay a finger on him. Take all of his stuff, but don't touch Job. And so Satan attacked Job. You know the story. He destroyed all of his herds. He destroyed all of his flocks. He destroyed all of the lives of Job's loved ones. And he left Job with nothing. He took everything that he owned. He took all of his kids. And when Job saw all that happened, he was sad. In fact, he was saddened. And he mourned the loss of his family. He mourned the loss of his loved ones. Exactly the way that people normally would. He mourned according to his custom, and then he rose up on his feet, and he declared boldly, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And you know what he did? He got up and he worshiped God, even in those incredibly difficult circumstances. I can't imagine. Unbelievable circumstances, and yet he got up and he worshiped God. 
So Satan then approached God a second time. He said, of course he did. Why should we be surprised that Job would go ahead and worship you and honor you? Because you wouldn't allow me to touch him. You've given him so much that even in his great financial loss, he has great health. If you really want to know what a man is made of, see how he feels about God when he is faced with death. Satan says, if you really want to know what this guy is made of, let's really strike him. Let me strike him and you'll see what he's made of when he's facing death. And when I strike him, he will curse you to your face. And God said, okay, go ahead. You can attack Job's body, but you cannot kill him. So Satan went after Job and he struck him with some of the most unimaginable illnesses that you can imagine. Job was covered from head to toe in painful sores all over his entire body. His affliction was so bad and he was so badly disfigured that people didn't even recognize him anymore. They didn't even know who he was. He was so mangled. Seeing what happened, Job's wife approached him and she was a little bit less than supportive. She came to him and she said, Job, are you still serving God under such horrible conditions? What's the matter with you? Curse God and die. And Job's response to his wife was an amazing statement of his spiritual maturity. You know what he said? He said, God has been so good to us. God has lavished His blessing on us. Shall we take the blessing from God and not take the adversity? And you know what, guys? Job was right. Kids, listen. If we take the good times from God, shouldn't we also accept the hard times? If we accept the good times, shouldn't we also accept the hard times? And then Job's friends came to him on top of all of this, and they accused him of concealing sin. So think about this. Day after day, one circumstance more difficult than the last. Job was broken. He was poured out on the altar. He was a mess. He was in pieces. His wealth was gone. Every single one of his children, whom he loved so much, was gone. They all died tragically. His own life was ebbing away from him. His friends, who should have been helping him, were gathering around him and accusing him of concealing his sin. And the icing on the cake was he had a wife who told him to curse God and die. Those are pretty bad circumstances, aren't they? Those are pretty bad circumstances. I don't know how much worse it could possibly get. Macro, Thumia, he was long sacrificed. He was poured out. He was broken. He was burned on the altar of sacrifice. And he refused, even in the most horrible circumstances, to dishonor God. Even while his family and his friends said really insensitive things to him, even while those people who were closest to him said really stupid things to him, he refused to dishonor God. He was macrothumia in his circumstances. Do you get it? And I want to move on from this now, and I want to show you another area where we must exhibit this macrothumia. How many of you have unsaved friends and family for whom you've been praying for a very long time? Maybe you've shared the Word of God with someone, and they just have one excuse after another. Do you know anybody like that? How many of you have been there? You've shared the Word of God, and it's rejection after objection, and excuse after excuse. They just refuse to believe. 
Or maybe you know someone that you've poured into. Maybe even for years you've told them about the love of Christ. You've told them about the hope of Christ. Maybe they've even seemed at some point to begin to bear just a little bit of fruit and you're encouraged and you're thinking, hey, things are going really well, only for you to find out that it was all superficial, it was all a fraud, and then they turned around and ran away from the things of God. Maybe, kids, you have friends in school and you've introduced them to the good things of God. And they've mocked you and they've laughed at you and they've closed you out and they've turned their backs on you and they make fun of you when they're in front of your friends. Maybe a parent, you have a child who's not very spiritually mature and he's not mature in his faith and you take the word of God to him and you give him correction from the word of God. You train him in the word of God and he still continues to make decisions that continually confuse you, they frustrate you, and they upset you and your heart is broken. Maybe you have preached to your spouse for years and years and years and he has refused to submit to God and you've just given up on him. You've said, I'm going to save my breath. I might as well just stop. As Paul was planting churches throughout the Roman Empire, there was a young man whom he mentored and coached and that man's name was Timothy. And Paul wrote a letter to Timothy and this is what he said in 2 Timothy. This is the second letter he wrote to him, chapter 4, verse 1. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Here comes the charge now. Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete macrothumia. You see it? With complete patience. Keep doing it with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth, and they will wander off into myths. They will wander off into stories and fantastic things. Listen, Paul told Timothy that people only want to hear what they want to hear. You know that. You've seen it in your own lives. There are people who only want to hear what they want to hear. And so unfortunately, there are preachers who are willing to tell it to them. There are preachers who amass huge crowds by telling their followers exactly what they want to hear. They change the message. They soften the message to accommodate the passions and the itching ears of their listeners. They pull and they market the masses to give them whatever brings them the most success. But Paul says, you are not to be that guy. He says, endure, preach the word of God. Preach the word of God. Honestly, be ready constantly. Train people with the word of God. Correct people with the word of God. Kids, listen to me. It is okay for you at school to warn people with the word of God. Warn people with the word of God. And don't dishonor the Lord by softening his word to suit their passions. You can expect people to turn away. You can expect people to run from you. You can expect people to find a more comfortable message that they like. Listen, people will not swarm to you if you properly teach and instruct from the Word of God. They won't. But show macrothumia. Be patient. Don't give up. Labor over the Word of God. Know it well so that you can properly share it with the people in your schools. Know it well so that you can properly share it with the people in your workplaces. Know it so that you can properly share it with the people in your homes, even if they don't want to hear it. Macrothumia, hang in there. Sacrifice a long time. Suffer long with it. Stay in it. Don't soften the Word of God. Keep 
preaching to your rebellious child. Keep preaching to your rebellious husband from a heart of love and share the word of God with him. Don't turn it off. Show sacrifice long over teaching them. And don't give up no matter how many times they turn their backs and walk off. Stay on the altar. Endure so that God can reach those people through your diligent preaching. That's what the Word teaches us to do. So those are a couple other uses of makrothumia. But there's another one that I want you to be familiar with, and I'm going to take you back to our passions now in Ephesians chapter 4. And here I'm going to show you the greater message of our passage today, okay? Very important. Verse 2 says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, this is that makrothumia, bearing with one another in love. So listen, we are to be people of makrothumia in our circumstances, We are to be people of makrothumia in our preaching and teaching. But there is no place, this is so important, please listen. If you haven't heard anything, listen to this. There is no place where makrothumia should be on greater display than right here in the church body. Did you hear that? There's no greater place that it should be on display than right here in the church body. Kids, we should be patient with people who love Jesus. We should be patient with people who love Jesus. And how do we exercise this long-suffering? What does the Bible tell us? How do we display this long-sacrificing? How do we display this patience? It's by bearing with one another in love. That's what the Bible tells us. Bear with one another in love in verse 2. I have many times over the last few years shared with you three of the Greek words uh, that are translated as love in the Bible. And this is one of those. This is agape, which we all know as the love of the will. It's a love of sacrifice. Listen, this is the love that costs you something. This is the love that will cost you something. It's the love that gives without expecting to receive anything in return. That's the kind of love which should be present in our church. The kind that gives even when it doesn't receive. That's the kind of love that says, it's not about me. It's about everyone else. It's the kind of love known as the love of God. It's the kind of love known as the love of Christ. It's that same love. It's the love that made Jesus lay down all the privilege of heaven to come to earth and to suffer and die on your behalf. That's the kind of love that it is. And when He did that, He was modeling that kind of love for you. And when Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that He laid down His life for His friends, that's what He was talking about. And then when Jesus said, love just the same way that I have loved you, that's what He's talking about. It's this agape. It's the sacrificing. And he was modeling that for you. Take a look at verse 2 again. It says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So I want you to get this. The opposite of humility, we said, is pride, right? Think about that. If I can't lay down my pride to sacrifice for the people of this church body, how could I ever lay down my life for them? What about meekness and gentleness? The opposites of that maybe would be brashness or how about, that, uh, how about that feeling that you have that makes you want to just lash out and fight whenever you're mistreated. Now I want you to think about this. If I can't lay down that brashness, if I can't lay down that passion in me that wants to lash out and fight when I feel like I've been done wrong for the people in this church body, how am I going to lay down my life for them? If I can't even lay that down. 
How would I lay down my life? If I can't suffer long, if I can't sacrifice long for the people of this church body, how could I lay down my life for them? But why would we even want to do that anyway? What's the point of all of that? Well, Paul told us back in Ephesians chapter 3, if you were here, you'll remember about the mystery of the church. He said the great mystery is that in Christ we are all made one. Remember that? He says that in Christ there is one united, one united body. In Galatians 3.28 he says there is what? Neither Jew nor Greek. You remember that? He says there's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For we are all one in Christ. That's the mystery of the church. We are united through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Now, listen, Paul has told us in Ephesians 4, I want you to walk in a manner worthy with all humility, with all gentleness, with all meekness, with patience and long suffering, bearing with one another in love. Verse 3 then, let's pick it up. Eager to do what? To maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body. There is one Spirit, just as you were called into one hope that belongs to your call. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Now, I am certain that you have probably noticed the condition of every earthly organization and institution around you, haven't you? What do I mean by that? The fractured. Earthly institutions are broken. They're schismatic. Do you know that roughly 50% of all marriages end in divorce? 50% of all marriages end in divorce. Our political system is broken and it's fractured over ideologies. It's unable to work together even for a common purpose. They can't work together. Workplaces are divided. Workplaces are fractured. Everything that man makes is divided. Everything that man makes is broken. Why? Take a look at James 4. It says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? You know this. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You see, the problem is you want something, but you don't get it. And so you kill and you covet, but you cannot have what you want. And so you quarrel and you fight. That's the way it is with earthly institutions. I didn't get what I want, so I'm going to fight. He can't say that to me. I'm not letting him get away with that. Well, if I had been there, I would have said this to him. He never would have gotten away. I'd like to see him try that with me. Does it sound familiar? Can't do that to me. And from this comes brokenness. I didn't get what I want. I'm going to fight. Kids, listen. We should not argue and we should not fight. When we don't get what we want. Parents, say amen right now. I know, I know that's what you're thinking, right? Kids, we don't argue and fight when we, parents, we don't argue and fight when we don't get what we want either. Listen, from this comes disunity. Do you hear? So important. From this comes disunity. From this comes disunity. From this comes fracture. In verse 3, we read that the Holy Spirit has already united the body of Christ. Friends, the body of Christ, the church, the greater church, is already united. It's already one. We don't need to worry about unity in the body of Christ. We need to worry about disunity in the body of Christ. Listen, we don't need to worry about creating unity in the body of Christ because the Holy Spirit has already done that. We need to stop disrupting the unity that already exists in the body of Christ. We need to stop quarreling and fighting when we don't get what we want. 
Here's the point. Paul is telling us that when the members of the body of Christ conduct themselves in all humility, all lowliness, all gentleness, all meekness, and when they long sacrifice for one another, suffering and bearing with one another in this sacrificial love, you know what happens? It becomes a really loud witness to the rest of the world that the body of Christ is not a human institution. That's what happens. The rest of the world does not have the ability to exercise practice that is fitting for people of your position. The rest of the world can't do that. These are fruits that can only be found from the Holy Spirit living within you and empowering you to conduct yourselves in such a manner. That's the only place that it will come from. Listen, when we do that, then it becomes obvious to the rest of the world that the Holy Spirit has created a supernatural bond, a supernatural unity that holds the church together. That's the point. It's a testimony to the world that the real church is not another man-made institution like all of the rest of them, but it is indeed the real body of Jesus Christ. That's the message. That's the point. Do you remember that thing that I once told you not long ago about not softening the Word of God. So as I prepared our message for today, I want to tell you that I felt the Lord was really making me uncomfortable and challenging my heart with this. And so I'm going to share some things with you this morning that may cause a little bit of discomfort, and I'm not going to soften them for you. And I want you to understand that I say this in humility, and I say this in love, but I'm not going to soften the Word of God for you. It is a sign of spiritual immaturity to be constantly focused on your own needs and your own problems. It's a sign of spiritual immaturity to approach every situation with a how-does-this-affect-me mindset. The point of being a member of the body of Christ is that all things are done unto the building up of everyone else, not you. Do you get that? Your point is that you go that you can build up everyone else, not that you can build yourself up. You are to build up the other members. Macrothumia, which bears with others in sacrificial love, is not concerned about itself. Do you know that? This kind of patience is not concerned about itself. It's concerned about everyone else. When we get all bent out of shape over every perceived offense against ourselves, the world sees the body of Christ as no different than any other man-made institution. And the world says, why would I want to go there? I can get that at work. I can get that in my marriage. Why would I want to go there? If this is what the body of Christ looks like, I don't need it. That's what the world says. You know, that's what the people at work do. They argue over everything that they perceive to be an injustice. They don't get what they want, and so they fight. That's what the people in your neighborhoods do. But when the world sees the members of the body of Christ viewing themselves in all lowliness, refusing to get upset about perceived wrongs committed against them, exercising patience even in the most terrible affliction, patience in sharing the Word of God with people around them, when they're patient with one another, making sacrifice for one another in love, friends, the world says there is something peculiar about about that people. Normal people do not act like that. There is something peculiar about the people in that church. Did you know that you can't fight with people like that? You cannot fight with people who carry themselves that way. How do you fight? How do you have conflict with someone who is lowly and humble? 
How do you have conflict with someone who refuses to lash out against, from all the wrongs that are committed against them? How do you fight with somebody like that? How do you argue with someone who patiently endures everything from their crummy circumstances to your crummy attitude with love and sacrifice? How do you fight with somebody like that? But Paul says that should be your attitude. He says that's who you should be. That's the way that we're supposed to live our lives. And that's the point. You see, if everybody in the body of Christ would walk around like that, if those attitudes would characterize our conduct, there would never be any division. There would never be any disunity. Did you know that? You can't fight with people like that. We would maintain the unity that is already there through the bond of peace. So in conclusion, I'd like to challenge you with a thought. Right here in this room, there are more needs than you can possibly imagine. There's some people right here at this church who are suffering terrible circumstances, just like Job. There are people at this church who have lost family members. There are people at this church who have lost their jobs and their dignity. And they're financially in big trouble. They're in terrible situations. There are marriages right here that have been destroyed. There are families that have been destroyed that are falling apart. There are even people who have even lost their health and they find themselves struggling with terrible life-threatening conditions. They need sacrificial love. They need compassion from the people at Root River Church. They need sacrifice and love and compassion from you. May I encourage you, I want, listen closely, may I encourage you that rather than focusing on your own needs, that you sacrificially serve to support one of them? May I encourage that you do that? There are people here today who have family members and loved ones. There are people here today who have co-workers who have rejected the Word of God and are on a path which will lead them to eternal punishment. May I encourage you, rather than looking at your own problems, to pay for those people who are going to spend an eternity in hell? May I encourage you to pray for those people that they would find right standing before God through faith in Jesus Christ rather than worrying about your ingrown toenail? And I don't mean to take your, your conditions lightly, but think about this. How focused are we on our own problems? Pray for those people in the church body who are sharing the Word of God with these lost people that they will not soften the Word of God, that they will not grow weary in preaching love to them and in preaching the Word of God to them. Love them, help them sacrificially, lift them up, be an encouragement to them. I want you to know there are people in churches all across Milwaukee today who are not maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Rather, when they don't get what they want, they're quarreling and they're fighting. And I want you to know that if it goes unchecked, it will create division and it will create disunity in the body. May I encourage you, if you see that here at Root River Church, to be patient with those people, suffer long with them, and don't be easily offended. May I encourage you to love them and to sacrifice for them in their spiritual immaturity. Gently, lovingly, admonish them and guide them from the Word of God. Encourage them from the Word of God with love. Bearing in mind that you're sometimes that person too. You know that? Finally, I want to just issue a challenge to all of you here this morning. May I challenge you just for one week, just for this week, not to focus on and to pray for the things that you see as needs and afflictions in your own life. Just for one week. 
You think you could do that for one week? Maybe more difficult than you think. But just this week, would you focus on and pray for the needs of the people right here at Root River Church? Would you focus on and pray for the needs of someone other than yourself? Can you love them sacrificially this week? Can you sacrifice the things that you want and the things that you think you need so that you can serve and love someone else right here in the body at Root River Church? You see, when you do that, the most interesting thing will happen. First of all, your heart will be filled with compassion. Your heart will be filled with humility as you see the struggles of your brothers and sisters right here in this room and you have no clue what they're going through. But secondly, even though you aren't petitioning God on your own behalf, you're going to find that God will still meet your needs and He'll minister to you because He's going to do that through the prayers and sacrificial giving of all the people around you who are praying for you and ministering to you. Did you know that's how the body of Christ works? That's the design of it. You'll see unity in our body. You'll see peace in our body if you'll do that. How unusual. How extraordinary. How unlike the world would Root River Church be if we learn to be long-sacrificing, long-suffering in all of our circumstances, in all of our instruction, and in our love for one another. The world would have to say, those are some peculiar people over there. They're probably already saying that. They'd be forced to take notice, wouldn't they? Father, I thank You for Your patience with me. I thank You that Your love and Your mercy and Your grace is greater than all my sins. I thank You that as I ran from the Word, as I ran from the drawing of Your Holy Spirit, that yet You were long sacrificing and You were willing to suffer long in Your patience for me. And I pray, God, for those people who are right here at Root River Church who have needs that are greater than we can even imagine that you would bring peace, that you would bring comfort, that you would bring confidence in you as they patiently endure their circumstances. Fill us today, Lord, with sacrificial love and compassion for those people in this church body and move us to serve them, I pray in Jesus' name.